I am so thankful that he's asked me to come and to uh, preach to you guys. It's an honor and a privilege. As Pastor Phillips said, one of my faithful and best friends in South Carolina in ministry, I would rather hear him preach. You're probably thinking the same thing right now. <laughs> but he has asked me to come. So I ask you to turn in your Bible to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, the sixth book of Scripture. I'll bring you greetings from Lake Murray Baptist Church, uh, worshiping this morning even as we speak. Thankful for a church that not only loves the Lord, but lets their pastor leave every once in a while to come and do things like this. I'm old enough to know that birthdays are a blessing. Everyone that comes around is a blessing. And so I'm thankful for the third birthday of Radiant Church. I'm thankful that God has been kind to you. I'm thankful again for the leadership and to be able to serve alongside you as South Carolina Baptists as well. When we look to Joshua chapter 5, I uh, know that that puts us in a, in a story that kind of needs a context, if you will. In Joshua chapter 5, the people of God had, of course, been freed from Egypt, came out to Sinai, given the law. The Lord didn't just save them to leave them. He saved them to be with them. And as he saved them to be with them, he told them, here's how you live in light of my presence with you. And instead of following after him, they were disobedient over and over again, grumbled and complained. And because of their disobedience, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God had given them a promise that I have a land for you. I've got something waiting for you. But instead of grabbing hold of that promise and seizing the victory that was theirs, they grumbled and complained amongst themselves in disbelief. And so God punished them. Over into the prior generation died in the wilderness. Now they came to the river Jordan ready to cross over into the promised land. And many crossed from dry land. Well, there's another time the Lord did that. He did that in Joshua chapter 3 whenever he opened up and dried up the Jordan River, and it says they crossed on dry land across into the other side. A miracle in and of itself. A miracle just like the Red Sea, as chapter 4 tells us. And you would think as they come into the promised land, which is now filled with those who are their enemies, and they're going to have to go to battle, you would think that they come into this promised land, this large group of people entering in, already had won victories on the other side of the Jordan, already had, had put those to death that were their enemies on the other side, you would think that they would come in ready to fight. Not only that, their enemies were scared. So reading in Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, it says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer the people of Israel in the promised land ready to take what is rightfully theirs. Now their enemies who were there were great and mighty, ready for war, as we've seen before. Now their enemies were there. Their hearts have melted, and there's no spirit in them. They're in fear. They're, they're scared of what Israel is and who Israel is, and especially the God that fights for them. So it's time to attack, right? It's time to go after them. But that's not what happened in Joshua chapter 5. That's not what happened. Israel was united. Israel was together. 
Israel was ready for war. The people, their enemies, were hearts were melted. They were, they were uh, spirit gone out of them. It was time for battle. But no, God was giving them different orders in Joshua chapter 5. Strangely different, if you will. Instead of attacking, God calls the people of Israel to recognize three things. He called them to recognize who they belong to, who they were dependent on, and who it is to fight for. Who they belong to, who they were dependent on, and who it is to fight for. I find this an important reminder for us in the church today. You see, for us in the church, and as, as we gather together the third anniversary, and we see what God is doing here amongst us, even celebrating baptism, celebrating new life in Christ, rejoicing in that he has never left us nor forsaken us, rejoicing in all of these things. We tend oftentimes, though, to look outside the walls of the church, outside from amongst us, and see all the enemies mounting up. See all of those who are looking to attack the truth. See all of those who are constantly wanting to destroy righteousness. See all of those who are living in unrighteousness. And we look outside sometimes and we quickly become overwhelmed with the enemies that are around us. We quickly believe that maybe we're not strong enough. Maybe we don't have enough power to do this. We quickly see that it's an overwhelming battle. Canaanites, maybe our hearts are melted. Oftentimes, we become like the Canaanites, our hearts melting and no spirit within us. But let us hear this truth today, Radiant Church. God is not so much concerned about your enemies or your circumstances. God is concerned about you. You see, as they step into this promised land and they come, the enemies around them, God has taken care of the enemies their hearts have melted. Their spirit's done. So is it time to attack? No. Let's make our sure our hearts are right. Let's make sure your faithfulness is good. Let's make sure your devotion is where it needs to be. He's wanting you to focus on him. The victory of God's people comes when his people focus on him and not their enemies. God has promised. God has promised. And you can rest upon his promises that the gates of hell should not prevail, prevail against his church. God has made a promise that the enemies have no power here. God has made a promise that they have nothing they can offer. Their weapons cannot do anything to you, for they have no power in them. Their flaming darts simply bounce off the grace and majesty and power of God, it says. So God has made a promise to you. And so how can you now live in that promise? You must be reminded today, I believe, who you belong to, who you are dependent upon, and who it is you fight for in your church. If you're going to be here for the fourth anniversary, or the fifth, or the tenth, or the twenty-fifth, Pastor Philip is only like 20 years old, so he'll be here for like another 40 years. If you're going to be here that long, it will be because you remembered who you belong to and who you are dependent on and who it is you fight for. So let's look at these three instances, if you will. And me, normally I would read all of this, but, but Pastor Philip told me I had to hurry, so I'm going I'm to work through this quicker. First of all, who it is you belong to, you must identify yourself. 
You must identify yourself. Instead of attacking here, the people of Israel do something quite odd. They come into the land, and instead of going into battle, they look around. Now, now Numbers tells us, when you read Numbers, and most of y'all have worked through that now, I'm sure, through your one-year reading plan. You got through Lamentations and Numbers. It's smooth sailing from here. So when you read Numbers, Numbers will tell you that after they made it 40 years through the wilderness and they're getting ready to enter in, they do a new census. And in that census, they count 601,000 men ready for battle. Not counting the women and the children. 601,000 men ready for battle. And so getting ready, they come in. Now, they've been wandering around in the wilderness all this time. Not much of an army, if you will. Kind of a ragtag bunch. But now they come in, and instead of taking the time to, 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 to beef up their battle plans, the Lord tells them, I want you to do something quite different. I want all of you to go through surgery, men. He says, I want you to be circumcised. You see, it tells us in this passage that the whole time they were in the wilderness, they were not circumcised. The whole time as that older generation passed away and the younger ones came up, they were not circumcised. And so they came in. Now, circumcision is important. And I don't want to, I'll let Philip handle all the details of that. But <laughs> circumcision is important for the people of God because it is what marked you as a child of God. Simple as that. Let's put it in that way. This is what made you. This is what identified you as belonging to him. This is what marked you as one of his children. A covenant promise that was made to Abraham now displayed in each and every one of them as they were marked as God's people. And so whenever they came in, God said, the most important thing you can do now is identify yourself as mine. And 601,000 of them were circumcised. That's not what you really want to do before you get ready to go into battle. He's not worried. Remember, let me remind you, he's not worried about your enemies. Before they could go to battle for the Lord, they had to identify themselves as his. We can't live in this world without an identity. All of us are struggling for identity, aren't we? All of us are looking for that. Every one of us. I went through it myself. Every one of us is trying to figure out I grew up a preacher's kid, so I, I went through life as a preacher's kid trying to figure out if I wanted to be a preacher's kid, trying to figure out how I was going to follow after him, and, and even going into college not knowing what that would be. All of us are looking for identity. All of us are looking for an identity. We think about the Old Testament, and we try to put this together with the New Testament. Let me try to help just a little bit. This circumcision in the Old Testament was an outward sign. It was to symbolize what had taken place even inwardly, supposedly. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, if you will, what matters is your heart. This is only an outward sign. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign that has become fulfilled in the New Testament. And how is it fulfilled? Colossians 2 tells us it has been fulfilled through what Christ has done. If circumcision in the Old Testament was the removal of flesh, Jesus goes to the cross and there he puts the flesh to death, finally removing it ultimately and completely, Colossians 2 says. And so putting the flesh to death now, the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the New Testament through circumcision not made by human hands, the Scripture tells us, but through circumcision of the heart. What matters now is a new heart. What matters now for the child of God is a new heart. A new heart that loves the Lord and follows Him. A new heart that has the Spirit of God dwelling inside it. A new heart that produces that fruit of the Spirit. 
a new heart that has God's word and wants to follow it within it. A new heart that, that loves the neighbor, that seeks justice and righteousness in life. That's exactly what we are identified now. I believe in so many ways Christianity has an identity crisis. We tend to think that our identity is locked up in whatever power we may have, whatever positions we may obtain. We tend to think our identity is locked up in whatever we can accomplish, right, for the kingdom. But we must realize that our identity is locked up only in Jesus Christ and Him alone. We need a heart that is not scared to tell the world, I belong to the Lord. He is mine and I am His. We need a heart that's not scared to walk down the street and be able to say, I belong to Jesus. He is mine and I am His. We must identify ourselves before we can ever go into battle. Hear me when I say this, brother. Identify yourself before you can go into battle. Let the world know who it is you belong to. And, and, and understand here, all of us, all of us in this room have an identity. To some, it is still in themselves. To some, you're still trusting in your own power and your own strength. To some of you, you still think that you can make this on your own. Some of you think you're smarter than God. Of course, that's what sin is, right? I know better than Him. Some of you think that the brokenness that you deal with in life and the difficulties you face, you can figure that out. But the Word of God tells us that it's only in Christ these things are healed. It's only in Christ they're satisfied. So identify yourself today knowing that Jesus can be your satisfaction. Just as the people of Israel must have identified themselves to God, they also had to know who they were dependent on. We do not need any more declarations of independence. But we need declarations of dependence in the Christian life. We need to make clear that after we identify ourselves, me, made me, save me, dependent upon the Lord. Not only is he mine and I am his, not only is he absolutely in need of him. Save me and I follow after him, but I am absolutely in need of him. Absolutely in need of him. After identifying themselves, they, they come now to celebrate the Passover in verse 10. The Passover, of course, reflected uh, what happened in Egypt, the tenth of the plagues. In Egypt, you remember, the Lord was calling them out, and, and the Lord uh, did these ten plagues in Egypt to the Pharaoh. Now, these plagues weren't just the Lord coming up with some good things to do and throw at Egypt. These plagues were the Lord God Almighty demonstrating the absolute weaknesses of the gods of Egypt. In every way, he's telling them, you, you worship the Nile, I'll turn that to blood. You worship your crops, I'll eat all those up. You worship your cattle, they'll all die. You worship the sun, I will turn it to darkness. In every way, the Lord was demonstrating, dismantling their idea of the gods that could save them. And when he got to that tenth one, he says, I'm the God who even overcomes life and death. And every family shall die. The Lord says that goes for those who were Egyptian and for those who were Israelites. But Israelites, I'm going to give you a way out. Here's what you do. You take the lamb. You take the perfect lamb. You come in. You cook it. You eat it, right? You boil it, and you eat it there with your family. And you, you go ahead and gird yourself up, get your robe on, get your staff between your feet. Don't even wait on the bread to rise up because we're getting ready to leave this place. And as we eat and we celebrate what God has done, you take some of the blood of that animal and you put it over your doorpost. And when the death angel comes 
They will pass over you. Why? Because you've been covered in the blood. And then you take that, that, that lamb that you have slain and you have, have sacrificed and you ate and whatever's left of it, you take it outside the camp, right? And you burn the rest of it there. And you go to bed tonight ready to hear the call of the Lord to come on. Let's go. And there the Lord was faithful to do exactly what he said. And that night the people of Israel left out of there leaving slavery and bondage behind. When they get to Sinai, they celebrate after one year the first Passover. Recognizing that without the Lord, they were slaves and dead in bondage. But the Lord had redeemed them. The Lord had delivered them. And the Lord had made them his own. And now, as they get to the promised land, they had not celebrated a Passover since Sinai. They had wandered around in the wilderness. They had they'd stayed there in disobedience, and they had not celebrated again the Lord's deliverance for them. But now they get in, and after having identified themselves again as the Lord's, they gather together to eat together, celebrating this Passover. I'm reminded, we sang just a little bit ago Psalm 23. I love that verse in Psalm 23, verse 5, where it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. If our enemies were outside this, this door ready to come in and take us on, not many of us would sit down and say, hey, let's go ahead and have us a little snack real quick. Power over us. So the Lord has made a table even in the presence of our enemies. And here in the Passover, they come into the promised land in the shadows of Jericho, in the shadows of the Canaanites. And now they are able to eat. And then eating, they're reminded that it is God Almighty who has redeemed them. Not, not here unless he saved them. They're not here unless he delivered them. They have not received the promises of God unless God has been faithful to keep his promises. They're reminded they're absolutely dependent upon the Lord. So it is this morning. I want you to know what we've done in this room is the same. Yes, we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're not looking at the Passover this morning, but what we are doing now is the same as Psalm 23, 5. We have gathered together in the presence of our enemies and we are feasting upon the word of the Lord. We're feasting upon the promises of God. We're eating of what is good and the Lord says, taste and see that I am good. Call on me and I will hear you. The promise midst God even as we sing them and the word of God even as we gather. And our enemies may be gathering outside, but that is no matter to us for in here we praise God. For he cares for all things. We're feasting upon the word and we are declaring in this our dependence. And we need to know that the scriptures make it perfectly clear that that Passover lamb wasn't the end and all, be all in and of itself. That Jesus is our Passover lamb. As 1 Corinthians 5, says, he, 5, 7 says, he is the lamb. We see that all throughout the New Testament. He was the one who was crucified outside the camp, Hebrews says. He was the one that was taken outside of the camp for us. He's the one who's the perfect sacrifice. He's the one who has died in our place. It is through his blood and us washed in his blood that the, the wrath of God passes over us and there's none left for us now for the reason why Paul can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ is because we have been washed clean by the precious blood of the Lamb. And so ultimately, we are absolutely dependent upon him. Just as Jesus went to wash the disciples' feet, and Peter said, Lord, I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus looked at him and said, if I don't wash you, 
you won't be clean. And Peter said, then wash me head to toe, Lord. I'm absolutely dependent upon you. I need you. Wash me head to toe. Look with me, if you will. Just think for a moment about the book of Revelation. I love the book of Revelation. If you want me to tell you real quick all about the book, it's an easy book to understand. Jesus wins. <laughs> and every time the people of God look up to the throne, what do they see? A lamb. Why is it that they see a lamb? Now, I love, I love Revelation 5, right? Here, here somebody's got to open these scrolls. And John's looked on, on above the earth and on the earth and under the earth, and there's nobody worthy to uh, open the scrolls, nobody anywhere. And, and somebody comes up, one of the elders, that says, taps him on the shoulder and, and says, weep no more for the lion of the... No, he sees a lamb. And why is that? That's because forever... When the Lord Jesus calls us home, after he saved us and redeemed us and brings us all the way home, y'all know what I'm talking about. Whenever we cross over that Jordan again on dry ground into the heavenly promised land, when we get there again forever, every single time we look at the throne, what will we be reminded of? The only reason we're here, the only reason we're present in the midst of this glorious place is because that lamb died for us. He sacrificed his life on our behalf. And so if, as one saint said, if for one second Jesus, heaven forbid, Jesus had to get up and step outside of heaven, all of us would have to leave with him. Because we are only there because of what he has done for us. We are absolutely dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In church, if we forget that, if we lose that focus, is the moment we become weak and feeble in our community and in our world. We are absolutely dependent on the Lord. I love what happens after they have the Passover. The Lord says, the manna stopped. They feasted on the land. The Passover reminded them of their redemption. The manna would remind them of their desire always to go back to Egypt. Remember why the Lord sent manna. It's because, Lord, you left us out here to starve to death. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt and eat food there. Go back to bondage and slavery and eat food there. And the Lord sent a manna every day. That manna reminded them of their desire to go back to bondage and go back to slavery. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Don't be so foolish. As one who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, don't have an appetite for what this world is offering. Don't have an appetite for what they're throwing at you. Don't think it would be better for you to feast upon those things than to trust in Christ. And the moment, even a day, that this providence of God may become bitter for us, we need to remember the promise is for our good, that everything is for our good. The promise of God, not only that everything is for our good, but that He is carving us and shaping us into the image of His Son. And so for us, let God feed you. Let his word feed you. Let God satisfy you. Don't feed on the husks of this world, but feed on the true bread that the Lord has provided. They ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So it be for Radiant Church, let's eat on the fruit of the land of Canaan. Let's eat on the truth of God's word. And in that, in that, we also must remember who we fight for, who it is we fight for. We fight for the Lord of Lords. Passover, 
after the surgeries and the healing, after the Passover, now it's time for battle. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, Joshua knows this. Joshua had heard Moses before. He remembered the cry of Moses, Joshua being his right-hand man, even in the wilderness. Remember what Moses says, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. We only go where you go. We only stay when you stay. Wherever you lead us, Lord, you take us. And he remembers the promises that God even gave him. Joshua, do not move from my word to the right or to the left. And if you do this, I will be with you and I will never forsake you. Joshua knew these promises, but now he's standing outside of Jericho with a bunch of, of, of men who had just had surgery and who are hopefully healed. He's looking at a bunch of them who, who are oh, ragtag, been wandering through the wilderness for years, and he's got this great big walls of Jericho here. What am I going to do with this, Lord? If ever I need you, I need you now, Joshua's saying. I love this idea. You why? Because he says he lifted up his eyes. Joshua was praying and searching for God. A man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua's wandering outside the walls of Jericho, wondering what's next to come. They've already identified themselves as gods. They've already recognized their absolute dependence upon him, and now it's time to go to war. Now it's time to go to battle, and Joshua is, is standing outside hoping, Lord, tell me, teach me, show me. And here he finds one, a man who is standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. In verse 15 it says, this was the commander of the Lord's army. Now, who is this man? I'm going to cut to the chase here for you. I believe this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. The reason why I say it's called a Christophany. He's appearing. One of a couple of reasons we know. Jesus didn't, didn't just get started in, in, the, in the manger in, in Bethlehem. Y'all know what I'm saying? He was the Word in the beginning. Always. He's eternal. Not only that, we see this in other places. We see where the Lord comes. Abraham's got his last time. We'll see it because whenever the three Hebrews are wandering out in the fiery furnace, who do they see in there with them? There's a fourth standing. This is, I believe, an appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ coming to comfort his people and fulfill his promises. Three reasons I believe that. One, Joshua worships him. In just a minute, he's going to bow down before him. If you find in Scripture or look in Scripture, worship is never allowed to one who is not God himself. They try to worship Peter and Paul, and, and Paul rips his clothes off saying, don't you dare do that again. That's not my spot. But here, here he's worshipped. And not only is he worshipped, this worship is accepted. And they use the same language as the burning bush that was not consumed that appeared to Moses. Take off your feet. I mean, excuse me, that will be a little bit harder, but the Lord can do anything. Y'all don't worry about it. <laughs> Take off your shoes for where you are standing is holy ground. They worship. Secondly, when Joshua goes to report the battle plans to the people, he says, this is what the Lord has said. And he uses that name, Yahweh. This is what the Lord has told me to do. And third, and this is the one I like the most. Our Lord always comes to us when we need him, doesn't he? Joshua's looking for battle. He's going out there. He doesn't know what to do with this great walls of Jericho. 
And it only makes sense because we've proven it true in our own life that every time we need the Lord, He's faithful to be there. And every time we need Him, He is there before us. Even as we sang, He's gone before us. So the Lord is there when He needs Him, ready for battle. Joshua's not alone. What did He say then? If this is the Lord speaking, this is the key. I love Joshua, this, this, this soldier standing here with his drawn sword in hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? Y'all know what it's like. Fix on your dad, can I be in at 1030 or 1130? No. That's the answer. It's also like whenever, whenever you come along and, and it's time, uh, uh, some big meal and it's dessert time. You know what I'm saying? You want... You want uh, sweet potato pie or you want apple pie? That's a dumb question. I want both. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. So it is in this place. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? No. That's the answer. But I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. The answer to Josh's question doesn't demand a yes or a no. Are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? Who are you fighting for? But that's what he gets, a yes or a no. So let me paraphrase this for you if I can. Here the Lord Jesus appears in the army battle clothes with his sword drawn, ready to go to war. And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? Now Joshua's the general of the army, right? He's the one who's leading the charge. Are you for us? I came to take charge. The question is, whose side are you on, Joshua? Listen to me, church. That's the question you need to be asking yourself every single day. You see, we oftentimes try to fit Jesus into our pocket, don't we? We oftentimes try to mold him into, into somebody we like, someone that's, that's a little less radical for us, someone that's a, a little bit easy to manage, someone that we can deal with in our own terms. But when we come to the Scriptures, we realize he's not really that easy to manage. He's a little bit more radical than we even like ourselves. But the Lord Jesus says, I didn't care what side you think I'm taking with you or with anybody else. I came to take charge. And now the question is, are you on my side or are you not? The question is, are you with me or are you not? You see, Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He doesn't go into any of our pockets. We don't get to fold him or shape him to anything we desire. We either follow him in all of his glory and splendor or we do not. We are either with him or we are not. To be perfect, middle ground, the word of God allows for no middle ground. Either you're a child of God or you're not. Either you've been born again or you're not. Either the Spirit dwells within you or it does not. Either you are walking the straight path, the narrow way, or you are walking the wide way. Either you are on the sheep side or the goat side. Either he's saying, well done, good and faithful servant, or he's saying, depart from me, I never knew you. Do y'all see what I'm saying here? There's no middle ground on this. Either you are for him or you are against him. Either you are fighting with the Lord or you are fighting against the Lord. And Jesus appears to Joshua and he says, listen, I want things to be clear here. I didn't come to take your side, Joshua. I came to take charge. Now, are you with me? Are you with me? Listen to the words of the late Pastor Tom Skinner. Speaking in 1970. So I was born in 75. This is a little bit before my time. 50 years ago. I associate myself with any argument 
that says God is on our side. I disassociate myself from the one that says God sends troops to Asia. God is a capitalist. God is a militarist. That God is a worker behind our system. One thing you must recognize is that Jesus Christ is no more a capitalist, capitalist than he is a socialist or a communist. He's no more a Democrat than he is a Republican. He's no more a president of the New York Stock Exchange than he is the head of the Socialist Party. He is neither of that. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And if you're going to respond to Jesus, you must respond to him as Lord. We oftentimes try to fit God into our categories, right, that we set up. We try to put him into our box. But here as he stands before Joshua, he says, none of that's the case, Joshua. Are you on my side? Jesus Christ, who do we identify ourselves with? Christ Jesus is the one who went to the cross to remove flesh and sin so that we can be identified with him with a new heart. Who is it? Who is it that we're dependent on? Jesus is the one who died in our place and we're washed by the cup blood of the Lamb and without him we have nothing. Who is it? Who is it that we belong to when we fight for? Jesus is the one who has come, gone to a cross, opened up his arms wide open, and when he says there on that cross, it is finished, what he means is everything against me. And now the only question that remains is for you. Are you with me or are you against me? Are you with me or are you against me? He is the one we belong to. He is the one we depended on. He is the one whom we serve. As they step into the... For the people of Israel, there was no fear about the enemies. The victory was already theirs. Now just go get it. And how do you go get it? You know who you belong to. You know who you depended on. And you know who it is you fight for. And I will say to you, Radiant Church, this morning, the victory is already yours. Now just go get it.